Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome. The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me tonight is my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing really good. How are you? I sincerely appreciate you helping us out with this. Nate is out again. Obviously, for personal reasons, we've talked about he will be back next week. Everyone's doing great on that front. If you're worried or curious, everyone's doing very, very well. So excited to get Nate back, but very happy that you are here to do this with us tonight. We're going to dig into a lot of stuff from week 10. We'll talk about the Bucks win chat about what the hell is going on with the bad teams in the AFC West, chat a little Chiefs because you're here and it would seem silly to do this entire show without talking about the Chiefs for at least a bit. Let's start, though, with the game of the day, probably one of the games of the season when it's all said and done. The Vikings beat the Bills 33-30, to an absolutely wild one. I'm going to start this conversation with a question that I've posed several times to several different several different people on this podcast so far this season. The Vikings are 8-1. and one. Are the Vikings good? <laughs> um, you know, they might be above the equator in DVOA after this week. They might be above 18th overall. And uh, it's kind of wild because you watch them and you see like a lot of good things that they do. And you're like, yeah, I really believe in it. 
But they also do some stuff they don't believe in, and they just have that inherent like Vikings history, and unfortunately, uh, <laughs> what we think of Cousins the quarterback and kind of his ability to do it in the playoffs and on the bigger stages. And it feels like they're a good team. They obviously don't feel like an eight and one team, and I think that's kind of where the disconnect lies. Is we don't know how to kind of properly evaluate them and properly place them uh, in amongst the you know NFL elite. So I have two or three different elements of this game that have caused me to think a little bit differently about the Vikings now than I did when I woke up this morning. The first involves Justin Jefferson. This Today was a reminder that Justin Jefferson is truly one of the 5-10 elite players in the NFL, the plays that he made in this game. I want to say that eight of his catches in this game, according to Next Gen Stats, Beller can, can pull up the tweet in the stat, but I want to say eight catches that he had in this game. Excuse me. Nine receptions that he had in this game, according to Next Gen Stats, had a sub-50% completion probability, which when you watch that game, that's what it felt like. Every single time he went up to make a play, it was a 50-50 ball. It was a contested catch. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about the 4th and 18 catch. Maybe the best catch I've ever seen in terms of stakes, what it was like in the moment, when it came in the game, everything about the mechanics of it. Was that the best catch you've ever seen? I think so when you put all those things together because, I mean, you're again, you're it's fourth and 18. You're making an Odell-like catch, except the other guy kind of caught it too, and then you have the physical strength to like snatch it from him, which my shoulder, one, I wouldn't have had the mobility to do it because I have O-line shoulders, and two, the strength to just like reach from behind your head and pull with enough force to yank the ball from a guy who has two hands on it. Again, Having fourth his down. hand on it coming down, the <laughs> fact that he kept it in one hand through contact and through hitting the ground, it was absolutely insane. So we all know Justin Jefferson is good. My concern over the first, let's say, eight weeks of the season with Justin Jefferson, Kirk Cousins, and the composition of this offense is that they weren't they weren't pushing the ball down the field at all. Kirk Cousins through eight weeks was 33rd of 35 quarterbacks in air yards per target, about six air yards per throw. Okay. Justin Jefferson had seven targets of 20 plus air yards over the first eight weeks he's had seven over the last two games over the last two games Kirk Cousins is averaging 9.2 air yards per target which is sixth among all 32 quarterbacks so if I'm going to see the offense in a different way them willing to push the ball down the field and them willing to be more aggressive with some of these 50-50 tight window however you want to describe them throws to Jefferson that is a very good starting point Because if you're going to allow him to make these sorts of plays, then who you are as an offense changes in my mind. And I think that's an important step in kind of reconfiguring what we think about whether this team is actually good at football. Yeah, it's a really good point. And you have to wonder, you know, obviously teams are going to go into the year and say, all right, we can't let this guy beat us. We can't let him beat us deep. Um, You know, we got a new offensive coach and you're kind of wondering, you know, what part of it is scheme? What part of it is what the Vikings are choosing to do and what the defense is dictating to them? And then there's games like today where you just realize, like, dude, just throw it to him. <laughs> like, just throw it to him. Just, just throw, throw it up to him. To him. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's like what we've seen with Burrow and Chase. Like Burrow just throws it up to him and he does it to all his receivers, but he kind of just empowers his big guys and his good players to go get it and to have fun and to uh, like the challenge of coming down with it in two-on-one situations. And so um, whether the Vikings are doing something different structurally the last couple of weeks, whether they told Kirk like, dude, just throw it to him. Like, even if it's not, you know, quote unquote, classically open, you got to trust your guy or whether something sparked and he realized today he just had to do it to have a chance. Uh, I think it's awesome for the offense. And like you said, you know, you can't dink and dunk and, and have a guy that good and that explosive and not utilize his full tool bag. And so if they're able to do that more consistently and kind of, you know, defenses are saying, all right, we're going to play, you know, too high or we're going to play whatever and take away Jefferson deep and you're still shredding them and you're still throwing it to him when he's double covered, he's coming down with it. That changes your offense drastically. And, you know, this offense is built on kind of run game, play action, under center stuff. And if you're forced now to, you know, stay back there because they're pushing the ball down the field, it drastically changes that run game and what they can do up front. The other element of their offense that I was really encouraged by today, the thing I was most worried about, Beyond the air yard stuff, beyond their inability to push the ball down the field over the first eight weeks or so, the interior of the offensive line was a disaster. Like the way that the right guard was playing and at times the center and the left guard, I was consistently worried about their ability to hold up. And in this game, I thought they played much, much better. There were a couple of moments, I think it was the third and nine late in the second quarter, where Cousins held out for a long time before finding Hawkinson over the middle of the field. And he just didn't have that sort of time in those sorts of moments for long stretches of this season. And so if they can play better up front on offense and they're willing to push the ball down the field, which those things can happen in concert with each other, that makes me a lot more bullish on the offensive side of the ball. And then extending kind of this trenches conversation, I thought they outplayed the Bills up front on both sides of the ball in this game. I thought that Harrison Phillips had some really nice moments. Z had some really big, not sacks, but pressures on third down that sped Allen up. And if they can outplay people on offense and defense up front, then we're really talking here because they have not been able to do that so far this year. On defense, they have. like Their pass rush is good, but on offense, they haven't. So that was the other kernel of like, okay, if this is going to be different, then I can talk and think about you differently than I have been so far this season. Right. And first off, thank you for not using the offensive linemen's names when you were saying that they weren't playing so well. I appreciate you just pointing it does, out. It doesn't really that. matter. Number <laughs> no, 67 does, has not been you know, playing we get, so we well. Get talked about, we get talked about like worst case scenario typically. So I appreciate you're just kind of pointing out positions and people don't have in their head like, oh, that guy sucks. So I do actually appreciate that. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think the interior of the offensive line. So there's you know, quarterbacks kind of fall into buckets of would they rather have their outside feel more protected? Would they rather have the inside? You know, Cousins isn't a guy who's necessarily going to break the pocket and look to run and throw on the run. And so you're talking about a guy who's a little bit more of a true pocket passer when he does throw it. And those guys tend to like feeling secure up the middle because that's where they need to step into the throw. That's where they're going to drive the throw from. If they do move in the pocket, it's going to be very minimal, kind of laterally just to avoid things. But that middle of the pocket being solidified, feeling good about things is absolutely a huge thing. And, you know, you see other teams and they put a lot of money, they put a lot of emphasis on securing those inside three because that's what makes a quarterback feel comfortable. And so um, kind of regardless of, you know, what, what their specific, 
specific scheme is what their thoughts are. You know, that inside being able to do that now allows you, like you said, those third and longs where the offense isn't necessarily at its greatest uh, ability to, you know, push the ball down the field. Maybe that extra half second that does allow Jefferson to beat double coverage, that does allow someone else to get open when they're shifting to Jefferson. Uh, Maybe on second and eight, they run the ball and they get that little bit more push. And now it's third and three instead of third and five. And that can uh, change what you're doing offensively. It makes a really big difference. And to have that kind of test against the Buffalo front that we've seen all season cause havoc and not just the edge guys, we've seen, you know, Ed Oliver and, and Jordan Phillips and really the whole kind of front eight or front 10 of, of what Buffalo is bringing on the defensive side, uh, just completely shred teams and really take over games. And for the Vikings O-line to, you know, match that test. And like you said, outplay them uh, on both sides of the ball, as you mentioned, especially on the inside of the offensive line. Um, it, it really is a good stepping stone for them. And you just have to build on that. And yeah, I, I think, you know, we expected their defense line Minnesota's to be good and to be able to rush the passer. Obviously, the guys on the edge uh, kind of leading that charge a little bit. But um, Buffalo was kind of playing a little bit, you know, less Josh Allen throwing the ball down the field early on. It did feel like they were, you know, trying to take a few throws off his plate, lean a little bit more on the run, a little bit more on physicality, see if they can play that style of game. And Minnesota responded well. Uh, they got to Allen in, in the past game, but they also did some good things up front uh, defending the run. There was a third and two, like little tiny moments in this game. There was a third and two in the third quarter. Singletary was stuffed. Harrison Phillips was playing on the other side of the line of scrimmage. There were a lot of those moments in this game. Well, you just notice those guys up front from Minnesota in ways that, especially on the interior on both sides of the ball, I hadn't previously this season. So you talk about the interior, the defensive line for Buffalo. The one guy I think they really missed in this game was Greg Rousseau. And then Jordan Poyer also didn't play. So I'm wondering, is this sort of a letdown from the Bills? Are you concerned about them? Do you feel like there are a couple guys like when they get back and they get right, it'll be smooth sailing? Where are you in, on Buffalo after today and after some of the missteps they've had really over the last couple weeks? I do think you have to cool down just a little bit on them. You know, I think as of two weeks ago, we saw them as, you know, up there with the Eagles. But I think realistically, we probably liked their playoff chances the best of anybody is in terms of the most complete team, kind of trust the quarterback in the playoffs a little bit more than what we've seen historically the last couple of years from Philly. And so uh, this changes things. And I think, you know, as much as we've talked about O-line, D-line, you know, guys who are missing injuries, I think some of the the Josh Allen decisions, some of the the pass plays, the turnovers are really concerning. That's a big part of his game that he's cleaned up in the last year and a half or so, and and that he's um, kind of catapulted himself into that upper echelon of quarterbacks with like. The cool plays are cool, and he can hurdle guys. He can throw it 70 yards downfield with a sprained uh, UCL. He can do all these sorts of crazy things. But it was that consistency, the the not being reckless, the throwing to your check down, the picking up the you know third and 12 with your feet and then sliding and getting down. And now he's reverted a little bit, and I don't know if it's, it's pressing. I don't know if he's gotten a little too confident and thinks he can kind of get away with whatever. But that would be my biggest worry about them. Uh, my second biggest worry would be the injuries. And like you said, there's a couple guys missing. They've had a couple guys missing in a lot of these games lately, and it does seem to be stacking up a little bit. You know, they got hideout for the season, and uh, this is a team that, you know, they're going to go as the quarterback goes, obviously. It was great to see him not have to miss a week, but – those minor injuries, like they start to pile up and it, it really tests your depth. And then you got guys playing who don't usually play. And maybe now, you know, your third or fourth defensive tackle isn't used to playing 50 plus snaps and he gets a little beat up and then it puts more stress on another guy. And maybe, you know, your starter has to come back a week early because you just don't have the depth. And now he gets, you know, re-injured. And so these things can kind of get out of control. They can spiral a little bit. You know, we've seen 
disaster injury seasons from you know Baltimore from San Francisco where things just seem like they're going crazy. Baltimore's or um, Buffalo's not there yet, but I am a little bit worried about their injury situation. Um, for me, it's just get to the playoffs as healthy as you can be and we'll see what happens. You know, there's only one bye week now and and we kind of thought Buffalo had the inside track after beating Kansas City and now that's completely shifted to Kansas City and so, you know, if this is a Buffalo team that's a little bit more beat up than uh some of the other teams and now they don't have, you know, that one seed and that bye once they reach the playoffs, uh that could be a pretty big deal. Yeah, you'd hope that when Russo comes back, Poyer comes back, Trey White should be back fairly soon, Kyrie Elam missed this game, that their defense can be a little bit better than what we've seen. The Allen decision-making stuff, it's just kind of strange to me, just because that was why he felt so scary in the early part of the season, is that it just seemed like he was pushing all the right buttons beyond like the physical tools that we always see. The decision-making was on point consistently. Him taking what's there and just, you know, I'll dink and dunk you underneath, that's what you're going to give to me. Just understanding exactly how he needed to play in these given moments. And I mean, now the amount of red zone turnovers, I know one was on fourth down, who cares? But the one at the end of the game, if that doesn't happen, do they win this game? The last couple of red zone turnovers he had last week. I mean, that's the part that is a little bit worrying. It's like, he seems like he's losing his mind in, in some of these moments <laughs> where it didn't seem like that for the first half of the season. But I do think they'll be better when they get healthier. And listen, if Justin Jefferson doesn't make that insane play on fourth and 18, if they don't fumble on their own goal line and, and allow the Bills or the Vikings to score a touchdown in a way that, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I saw that if I ever have. And there are a couple bounces of the ball here from them beating this Minnesota team. They were up two scores for most of the game. So I'm not doing any victory laps about how great the Vikings are after that game. They're better than I thought they were. And I'm not panicking about the Bills. But I do think this is a really good moment for us to kind of step back and reconsider the way that we're talking about both of these teams. Yeah, I agree. And and getting back to your first question is, uh, are the Vikings any good? Where do you rank them? I did not think this would be a game where you get into the fourth quarter, you get into the two-minute drill, and both sides are kind of trading shots and trading blows and it felt like one of those big time games where you know both offenses whenever they have the ball they're going to go down and score like I just didn't have that feeling about this Vikings team and I do think that's one thing that they showed that they can do that you know against a a team that you know theoretically has the best defense I know we just talked about them missing a few guys but um, I think that was maybe the more surprising thing coming out of it is that it felt like you know, kind of that big time playoff game that when things get down to it, there's the flurry of points at the end because score, 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 and they go back and forth and they trade and then you end up in overtime and, um, you know, kind of fizzled out just a little bit in overtime. But uh, it was just a little bit more impressive from the Vikings than I would have expected. And uh, I was curious what you thought in terms of, you know, kind of what they showed on the offensive side at the end of the game and whether you think that's, you know, truly who they are, or who they could be, or is that more just one crazy receiver taking over the game? I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I I do think the one crazy receiver can make that sort of difference, and he is that good. But you look at the entire picture of this game from Kirk Cousins. I mean, he threw two bad interceptions. TJ Hawkinson got an offensive pass interference penalty in the end zone for breaking up a throw. When's the last time you saw that when an offensive player was called for pass interference in the same way we would call a defensive player for pass interference because the throw was right to the defender like that happened in this game. So and Devin Singletary fumbles on the 25 yard line like it's the same way these games are with a lot of two good teams, right? 
five different bounces of the ball in the game could go a hundred different ways. So I am a little bit more optimistic about the Vikings offense simply because they're willing to push the ball down the field. But I do think that there are enough underlying concerns about this team's ceiling based on who its quarterback is. And I think he's fine, but I don't think this game was without its blemishes. Well, you did just subconsciously call them a good team. And you did say that it was, you know, two good teams playing each other. So you kind of put them pretty close to each other in terms of the matchup. Um, does this count as a Kirk Cousins primetime game? Or is this in that 1 p.m. Eastern slot and we can't properly evaluate him? Well, just because it's getting dark at 4 p.m. Uh, on the East Coast <laughs> and the Midwest, I, I still don't think this counts as a primetime game. So he's going to play a primetime game. So this, this team is, is the best be- version of him then. This team is going to be playing in the playoffs, and I do think that, again, I feel better about them now than I did this morning because of some of the stuff that I saw, but we'll see what their ultimately their ceiling is in the NFC when they have to play against the Niners, when they have to play against the Eagles and all. I mean, the one time we saw them play against the Eagles this year, it, it was a disaster, but again, I do think they're a better team than I did 24 hours ago. All right, we're going to take a quick break. After that, we're going to talk about the other game of the day, Packers to Cowboys. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Here are the categories in the Jeopardy round. <laughs> well done, brother. <laughs> All right. Packers-Cowboys, another great game. The game goes to overtime. Nice little primetime national TV spot. Packers win this game. They go to four and six. Kind of feels like maybe too little too late. Niners winning tonight. And they still have like a 15% chance to make the playoffs. According to 538, you guys can look at other playoff odds. I'm sure they're not too optimistic about what Green Bay can do from here. It's kind of how it feels to me. Uh, This is a good version of the Packers. I think that the offensive mix that they had is what I'd want to see from them. But again, still feels like it's going to be too much of an uphill battle for them to do much from here. Did you look at the box score? Do you know Aaron Rodgers' stat line? He was 14 to 20. 20 passes. That's nuts in an overtime game. Like talking about the balance, like they were basically two to one rush to pass, which is nuts. And Rodgers had those deep passes to Watson that they finally connect on and everyone's all excited about. But that's what they should be, though. Strange. Yeah, I know. It's just it's strange to think that like this is the way they have to play football with Aaron Rodgers, a quarterback in that scheme against this team specifically. I think that's exactly what you have to do. And well, we could talk about that. I, I think that against the best version of the Cowboys offense, this or defense, this is what you'd want to do. I don't think that version existed today. Well, we can get into that a little bit. But Rogers making four, five, six throws that are just insane, combined with them running the ball really efficiently, which they have done all year. Even if you've been concerned about the state of their passing game, they've run the ball well, especially with Jones. And then him making the throw he made to Watson down the right sideline for the touchdown. 
the throw he made to Watson that should have been another touchdown on the right sideline, but Watson slowed down. The one he made to Watkins that he essentially put in his face mask <laughs> on the right sideline. I mean, there's – and then the RPO to Lazard. Like, you just need him to make that handful of throws each game, play well in defense, and run the ball. I think that's exactly what they need to do based on the personnel that they have. He also played better today. Like, it just – that's the frustrating part about talking about the Packers this year is that you're like, man, what's wrong? And the receiving talent just isn't there. And they look so disjointed on offense. And a lot of it comes down to the quarterback just wasn't playing very well. And he played better today. It, it, it's not any more complicated than that sometimes. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, clearly his thumb's affecting him. Like, there are some passes that are very atypical from him. You know, I don't think physically he would have dropped off enough from back-to-back MVP seasons to be making some of the really, really, really strange throws that we've just not seen from him really in his entire career. Like, he has the best TD to interception ratio in NFL history. Now, a lot of that is by choice because he chooses not to, you know, kind of force the ball into spots. Yes. But it's also because he has exceptional accuracy and he can throw it exactly where he wants it most of the time. And we've just seen these kind of squirrely passes that come out funky and that are, you know, off by five, eight yards, and, and they're just not typical, like that pass to Bakhtiari, you know, from the week before. It's just, it's, it's a casual flick of the wrist that he probably completes every single time. And I guarantee in practice, you know, that ball is placed in the back half of the end zone and it's very easy and it's catchable. And the thumb just doesn't seem fully there. It did seem like it took a step in the right direction. Like you said, he played better today. And part of that is he made Aaron Rodgers throws and he zipped it in there and he put it, you know, exactly like you said, into guys' faces where they were forced to catch the ball. Uh, so that's a really positive development, but it just it, it seems strange that this is the version that they need to you know kind of produce. And like you said against Dallas, but this is essentially the way the NFC is going to go. This is what they're going to need in the playoffs to be successful. Uh, the counterpoint is they just prove that they can go up against one of you know the better teams in that division in that conference rather and play the kind of football that is successful once you get into the winter months and you know the physicality up front on both sides of the ball, being able to control things, pick and choose your spots to throw downfield, throw it accurately, and then the crazy Aaron Rodgers plays so uh, a bit of a positive development and you know still uh not super excited about this team for the long term how do you feel about it well i think it about the short term about 2022 i still feel like it's they're way too far to go i i they, they probably won't make the playoffs and i think that's why losing to detroit last week losing that game they lost to the giants all those close ones that's why they're heartbreakers because you didn't give yourself a chance to write the ship we're going to talk about the bucks here in a bit it's exactly what happened. Just based on the state of the division, they were allowed to have some shitty moments over the first half of the season, and it didn't really matter because they're still going to make the playoffs. The Packers just didn't get that sort of break because of how well the Vikings are playing or what the Vikings record is, I guess. So that's the frustrating part. I will say if they continue to play well down the stretch, maybe it changes the complexion of stuff for 2023 rather than saying, do we need to move on from him? Is that the best plan? We can based on the way that contract is structured. If you get to the end of the season, you say our best chance to do something over the next year with this core is to keep him and that that gives us our best shot. Maybe this trajectory and more games like this will lead you to that conclusion by the end of the year. Yeah, and and we'll see. I mean, I think the most encouraging part, you know, we've talked about kind of the balance on the offensive side of the ball, what they needed to do. They got down 24 uh, or 28 to 14 in the third quarter. You know, the game was tied. Uh, They come out of the half. Dallas scores, I think, in the middle of the third quarter and then towards the end of the third quarter. And it felt like, all right, you know, Green Bay, they stayed with them in the first half. Dallas is starting to pull away. The offense looks good. The defense is doing what they need to do. And 
Green Bay came back and they fought back and they tied it and they got the game to overtime and they won. And, uh, you know, I was, I mean, I have my cool setup so I don't have to turn any game off physically, but like that was a game <laughs> I was ready to, you know, take my attention away from and just, all right, this one's over. And, you know, Green Bay is kind of who we thought they were based on the first couple uh, months of the season. And so I think that ability to fight back, you know, despite a couple uh, testy moments from Rodgers on the sideline. And I completely agree with him. I mean, that end of game scenario where, Green Bay basically just runs the ball, runs the ball, chooses a play on third down that Aaron Rodgers is clearly not not too happy about. Uh, you know, comes to the sideline, cusses at Lafleur, and they basically just give up and go to overtime. I thought that was really strange, and um, I couldn't quite tell if that was like, hey, I don't actually trust my offense. I don't really think these guys can, you know, go down the field and not need to punt with a minute and a half left for Dallas and to give them the ball right back. I thought that was uh, kind of one of those odd situations that even in this victory, you could kind of look at that as a, all right, things are still pretty messed up there. And there's still, yeah. you know, this huge disconnect between quarterback and head coach. His just general demeanor, the body language, some of the reactions. If you were on that team, how do you think you would see that? How would you process the way he's acted this year? Man, that's a that's a tough one because, you know, from the exterior view, it kind of looks like, you know, he puts himself on a certain level and he has seen that a lot of guys are beneath him and not up to his level and uh, doing things that, you know, he doesn't approve of. And then, you know, really the, the worst thing you can do is become that guy who kind of sows disconnect between the coaches and the players. And when your leader and the guy who just got the biggest contract and, you know, quarterback in NFL history uh, on an you know annual average salary basis um, is openly, you know, defiant of the the head coach when he you know gets in his moods and pouts and looks very disconnected from everything like that has a big effect on the rest of the locker room. And, you know, when you hear about cancer in the locker room, essentially that's what that looks like. It's a guy who looks disconnected, uninterested, you know, openly criticizes the coaches, openly, you know, kind of says, oh, we should be doing this, we could be doing that. You know, the past few weeks, it's actually kind of led me to this little thought in my head that, you know, Rogers obviously thinks highly of himself. He's talked about, you know, he you called say. that. Yeah, he called uh, what the the Matt Flynn game that Flynn had like six touchdowns. I forget which you know random Green Bay quarterback that was to put up six TDs and got a big contract and flamed at. Yeah, so like he he called that game. Of course he did. Um, it's interesting to me that the play comes into Rogers' ear and he doesn't switch it. Like he seems really okay with just calling the play, knowing it's going to fail, and kind of spiting Lafleur over it. And like he seems like the kind of guy that the play would come in and he would just choose a different one because he trusts it better and he thinks that's the better chance to win. So it's this like little thought that's been in my head of kind of how to parse that out between this guy who is, you know, happy enough to just like have this play that fails and be able to yell at his coach, but also a guy who thinks he's this brilliant, you know, kind of thoughtful guy and can call a great game and understands everything about football and seems exactly like someone who would defy his coach and just call a better quote unquote play in his head <laughs> at the line of scrimmage. And I don't know quite how to parse that, but I figured you'd be the guy to talk about that too. Cause it seems like he would just get a call and be like, nah, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to call my thing. But every time it's third and short, he just runs the play and then he goes back to the sidelines and, and cusses his coach out. It's so hard as someone who just wants to analyze this stuff from what, what scheme are they running? Are they doing things the right way? Is this the right offense to be running for your players? Oh, that was the right play call in that situation. And in talking about the Packers, you have to consistently psychoanalyze the motivations and emotions of the quarterback. And it's just like, I don't know how to do it. 
I don't know how to properly say like, well, the Packers are struggling because their quarterback is in this sort of mood. But in order to actually talk about them and evaluate them properly, you probably have to take that into consideration. And you shouldn't have to do that after he, you know, held the team hostage in the offseason and forced them to give him this awesome Multiple contract. Multiple years. And yeah, I mean, I was trying to be nice there. Uh, but he finally got that crazy contract that, you know, kind of hamstrung them to do other things. And then he'll get upset because they don't bring in certain guys or they don't draft certain players. And it's like, well, you're the biggest cap hit in NFL history. And we have to kind of figure this out because you're choosing to be the highest paid guy over taking a little bit less money or not being the absolute highest paid so we can spend a little more on receivers or, or do this. And, you know, the the narrative of Devontae wanting to go play with Carr, you know, the more we kind of see things, the more it might just be he kind of needed a break from Rodgers too. And, you know, his old friend from college looked like the right guy to get back with. So, yeah, it's it's kind of crappy that we're at this place, that we have to analyze his mood and what he's thinking, how he's acting on the sidelines. This looks a lot like you know, the, the end of the McCarthy area and why they moved on from McCarthy. It looks a little bit like that first year with LaFleur where even though they went 13 and three, they still hadn't quite figured each other out. And there was still they a little bit of that back not. and forth. Yeah. And obviously they figured it out the last couple of years. And now it seems like the power has shifted a bit back to Rogers and maybe, you know, he's got a bit too much influence. Like you said, when you're looking at the schematics and what fits the players, what fits the team, it seems like the pendulum has definitely swung back towards catering more to Rodgers than it is to kind of stick to the LaFleur uh, offense. Let's talk about the Cowboys a little bit. After watching this game, I'm a little bit concerned about the defense. And when you take out a couple specific pieces, I think you saw the impact of that today. Losing Anthony Barr feels huge because it moves Micah Parsons away from rushing the passer all the time. And I do think that really matters when you're talking about this team's ceiling on defense and how scary they can be playing and play out. I also think that losing Jordan Lewis to IR, replacing him with Bland with Bland, his last name is Bland, which I feel is just like unfortunate. <laughs> I think it's number 26 and he's now their nickel. And I think that that showed up in a couple big moments today when, I mean, I think that the Watson completion on that crosser was Bland was on him. And then having Kelvin Joseph come in because Anthony Brown got hurt in this game, you're down two starting corners, you're down a starting linebacker who moves your best player out of position for at least some situational stuff. So now we're starting to chip away at the idea of what the Cowboys defense is, and that leaves me a little bit worried about their standing in this entire NFC conversation. Yeah, I'd probably leave the best defensive player in football at the position he can wreck games the most easily. Um, I tend I to agree with you. That should force him to play off the ball linebacker. And, and a, you know, if you want to say, oh, well, he can't stay in coverage or, you know, whoever would be that backup to bar can't, you know, do the things that Parsons can do in coverage, or whatever. Like, obviously, that's the case i mean he's parsons but also maybe parsons getting after the quarterback means he doesn't have to cover as long and you know maybe <laughs> you're able to combo all these pass rushers and now it's not just one or two good pass rushers every play now it's three of them and one of them is micah parsons um it does look like maybe he's a little bit hurt you know he's got the ankle thing and there are a yeah couple that's also another consideration it looked like it was pretty heavily taped and a little bit you know kind of thicker down there in terms of whatever wrap or tape he's doing and you know kind of comes off and gets checked out so i think there's this combination of like you said now he's not playing the position that he wrecks games the most easily and the quickest he is a little bit banged up the overall depth is starting to struggle a bit and you know we've seen all these great defenses 
Like it's it's exceptionally hard in today's NFL to be good on the back end and to have your defense run because coverage is just that exceptional that you shut guys down every single week and that's really the driving force. Like the Dallas defense was the Dallas defense in large part because the front four got to quarterbacks at record pace like, and they were able it's to It's like 80% of what made them the Dallas defense. <laughs> exactly, and that's what made you know, the Niners, the Niners a few years ago and is making them this year. And even though they've got a few injuries, like basically every great defense, you talk about Buffalo's defense, it's the front four. Like it's the front four. It's getting pressure on the quarterback and doing it quickly. That covers up a lot of things on the back end. It's just, it's so difficult to have like one cover corner, let alone three cover corners and the way you need it in today's NFL. And so, yeah, when you're, you know, getting injuries in the back end that pull the best defensive player in football away from playing the most important position on the defensive side, uh, I don't agree with moving him and that greatly affects the defense. On offense, a couple of rough moments for Dak in this game, red zone and end zone interception, really no explaining it away. That just can't happen. The second one, interesting defensive structure and scheme by the Cowboys they dropped into like a weird version of cover two where the safety dropped down as like the Tampa player and that screwed up the way that Lamb was supposed to read that because I think against a single high safety you want to cross his face against a two high look you want to actually run between the safeties it was neither it was actually cover two but there was somebody dropping down so he took it down the middle of the field and Dak throws an interception so you take out those couple plays and it looks like a very different game for the Cowboys offense so I still feel pretty good about them in the long run I thought that Jair Alexander had a couple really nice moments late in this game in huge situations but it was a good test against a better defense than the one they've played since Dak got back so where do you sit with Dallas their offense and kind of what they could look like here by the end of the season their offense is so tricky because like the top end feels so good, but I just don't feel like they ever really get there and they can maybe do it in one or two game spurts, but it just doesn't seem like they have that consistency. And, you know, really going back, I guess it was early last year, maybe before Dak pulled his calf that they looked the best they looked for like four weeks in a row and everything was clicking. Um, but for the most part, you know, over the last few years, it's been a lot of oh, well, they could be good. They should be a top five offense. And this thing happened. Quarterback got hurt. This guy got hurt. Tyron Smith got hurt. Yeah, Tyron got hurt. Um, so there's all these little things that like have prevented them from being truly one of the best offenses, you know, kind of over a full season. And it just, it feels like, again, there's just something missing that like isn't quite there. I don't know if it's, you know, the true number one receiver that they don't have, you know, the Tyreek guy or, you know, the Jefferson or the Chase that can, you know, truly be the guy that takes over a game. Um, maybe Odell comes in and, you know, <laughs> they've been courting him enough that it seems like, uh, I don't know why they keep making it seem like they want to pay him more money than they should in the media. Um, but it seems like, you know, they're willing to do that. So good on them, I guess. Um, I don't know if it's adding that extra piece and now you're just that much more explosive because you know, the best version of the Dallas offense was, you know, kind of three top level receivers and Dak being healthy and a really solidified offensive line. And, you know, they just kind of downgraded a little bit personnel wise. And uh, to combat that, they've upgraded a little bit in terms of, you know, Dak's experience and being able to handle different things. So uh, I think... You know, we kind of wish upon what we think and what we hope for their offense. I don't know that, you know, we've really ever seen it consistently enough to think like that's the version that's going to show up uh, in the playoffs. Yeah, I think they one more receiving option would be absolutely huge for them. I mean, because Gallup is he's looked fine since he got back, but I don't think he's enough of a difference maker to really move the needle. CD Lamb looked excellent today, but if he's kind of your 1A and you also have a 1B, I mean, I do think that that would 
change things for them and change the complexion of who they are in a way that it might not for some other offenses. Like, I don't know what Odell on the chiefs. Do you think it is like a huge difference maker for them at this stage? I think it is. If he's as explosive as he has been in the past, because there's an element of like, they used to be able to throw RPOs and Tyreek would catch one on the run and house it. Or, you know, when Sammy was four years younger, he could catch a ball and he still had the explosion. And, you know, I remember vividly the the first game against Jacksonville, he caught a ball over the middle and just exploded through the middle for like a 70 yard touchdown. You know, there's been a couple times where, you know, Pat's accurately thrown a pass to, you know, Juju kind of on an RPO, one of those kind of middle uh, slants or crossers and he catches it and it's got all the open room and, Someone catches him. You know, they just, they have explosion. They have the ability to go deep. They obviously have MBS, but having a guy that can, you know, kind of catch those, you know, quick hitting passes and get serious yards after catch. I mean, Odell on the Giants is probably the best slant receiver in NFL history. <laughs> like, yeah. he would just catch them regularly and turn them into <laughs> touchdowns. He's obviously not that guy anymore, but like, that in the Chiefs offense could be really valuable. And, you know, again, that could be really valuable for Dallas. So it's I'm sure the teams are kind of trying to figure out exactly how healthy he is and whether you get, you know, kind of full explosive version of it. Um, because Odell, the threat, but more of the possession receiver. Um, I don't know if that drastically alters offenses if he's not, you know, fully back. And with ACLs, it's it's really difficult and usually you don't get, you know, that full explosion back until the second year. Yeah, I think that with Dallas, he does change who they are offensively. But for me, my biggest question, my biggest concern after this game and after the last couple of weeks is what are they defensively for the rest of the season? Because even if you're optimistic about their offense, which I am, I think Dak is a really good player. I think that what they've shown over the last couple of weeks before this game, just the overall plan on offense, we're going to run the ball a lot, a lot of under center play action. We're going to get Dak on the move. I've just enjoyed what I've seen from them more than I have over the last couple of years. But I still think for them to truly be a threat in the NFC, their defense needs to be the scariest part of who they are. And right now, we're just losing elements of that that were there earlier in the season. And that would worry me if I were a Cowboys fan. Very quick question. How much do you think them forcing Zeke to be the starting running back and to get 15 to 20 touches, how much do you think that messes with the top end of what they could be or doesn't mess with that at all i think it messes with it somewhat we we said this the day after pollard had his first big game when when elliot was hurt which he was again today tony pollard had 22 carries for 115 yards i don't think tony pollard is somebody who should get 25 carries a game like there's a reason that he doesn't i understand why they don't do that but if you're going to hand... Because they overpaid their running back? <laughs> no, because it's they're worried about his workload and his ability no, to I hold know. up and all that stuff, which is fine. If you watch him every day in practice, I'm willing to concede that. But if you're going to hand the ball to running backs 25 times, they did it 27 times in this game, why can't Tony Pollard get 16 carries and Zeke gets nine instead of the other way around? Like, Is there anything preventing you from doing that? Because we've seen his ability to stay explosive and stay efficient with this sort of workload. So if he gets 15 touches a game and Zeke gets 10 touches a game where you're just flipping the ratio, what's wrong with that? That's all I'm asking for. I just don't want Zeke to be the lead back within the offense. I just don't think he should be anymore. Right. And what's stopping that, again, I think is the contract. <laughs> it's choosing him fourth or fifth overall, whatever it was, and then paying him 15 a year to be the top paid running back. Like it's that insistence that this is the guy. Like, 
you can say, oh, they've seen him in practice and they know he can't handle the workload, all that stuff. But we've never gotten indication that that's specifically the reason. It just seems I'm just like trying to find reasons like that make sense. <laughs> I know that that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it's only two weeks, and you know, it's a lot more difficult to do that for 17 weeks. But he's had two weeks now where he gets 20 plus, you know, touches and carries, and he's stayed plenty healthy. And like you said, he's uh, producing the full game. And so it might just be the thing where that kind of guy can't exist. Like there are plenty of, you know, quote unquote, smaller, faster guys in NFL history who've stayed plenty healthy and have done a really good job and, and stayed explosive. I'm wondering, this is, you're good, the right person to ask this, okay? Tyron Smith comes back. Your offensive line, especially in the run game, is playing very well. Do you just move Tyler Smith back to left guard and put Tyron back at left tackle and just say, we'll figure it out? Or are you worried about screwing up the combination that you've had for most of this season. I think if you're fully confident in Tyron being healthy and being back to where he is and game ready, you put him back at left tackle. Um, he's he's not a guy you're going to move. I mean, he played right tackle a not. very long time ago. Um, but if he's fully healthy, like having him as your sixth lineman and having that guy can only play if Tyler Smith gets hurt, or I guess theoretically if your left guard gets hurt and then Tyler Smith goes back to left guard. I'm not really sure that's the best way to kind of go about it. Um, you know, the best version of the Cowboys O-line has Tyron Smith at left tackle. And so, um, you know, I think you'd be willing to to move uh, Tyler back to left guard. And, you know, that does kind of hide a few of the things that he doesn't do quite as well at this point. And, you know, kind of playing a little bit more uh, physical, a little bit less with your hands, um, can kind of body guys up a bit better at the guard position. You feel like that's a big time transition? For somebody who has played left tackle for the first half of his rookie season, do you think that could be smooth if they did end up moving him to left guard? Or would you assume there are going to be some growing pains, some just time spent acclimating to a new spot? I think there's you know a little bit of growing pains, but he played left guard for most of training camp, so yeah, he has you know kind of those high pressure. He doesn't have game reps per se, but he has high pressure uh, reps there, and that was a position he was supposed to play, and now he's got you know. 10 plus games it'll be of experience at left tackle which is a lot more difficult like I think most guys would tell you moving from left tackle down to left guard is going to be a much easier transition than you know what he did to start the season which is moving from left guard to left tackle um, so the fact that he's you know kind of grown into this role started playing you know some better ball and gotten a little bit more comfortable left tackle makes me think he could move there and you know after a week or two kind of get things solidified and you might not you know see that big of a drop off from you know the current left guard to him and you know if Tyron's healthy and you're able to kind of get those two guys working together, um, you know, the double team potentials with, you know, a healthy Tyron and Tyler Smith and then Zach Martin and Terrence Steele on the right, um, you know, they could kind of turn into like Philly and just start mashing the ball and um, really do some cool things. All right. You have my attention. Gentlemen, you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Miami, Miami in the offense, the Dolphins offense. You have my attention. All right. Another huge game from the Dolphins. The running game gets going today. We were talking about, do we just want to talk about the running game? But but we can't. Like, the way that Tua and the passing game are playing is absolutely ridiculous. Like, he had another monster game today with a couple really impressive moments that I want to dig into. You and I haven't talked about the Dolphins offense at all this season. After today, after the way the first 10 weeks of the year have gone, where are you on the Dolphins offense? Oh, like thinking they could rip through the playoffs and very easily get to the Super Bowl if they stay healthy. Um, 
you know, they're, <laughs> I, think I'm I wouldn't have wanted man. to talk about, I know, just the running game, because that's a combination of the Browns running defense. And that's also the concern. Defense. It's hard to judge yeah. them. <laughs> but it's also part of Miami figuring out who they are. And now defenses are shitting themselves, trying to figure out how do we stop these guys. <laughs> and, you know, even though, uh, you know, we can talk about to his downfield passing and the numbers are good, the accuracy and the ability to hit guys in stride not quite as good as the numbers would show uh, but still incredibly efficient I think he's the best you know guy throwing 20 plus yards down the field um, which is because Tyreek is wide open and Waddle is <laughs> wide open and so even though he can't drive it downfield like a Herbert or an Allen or Mahomes he's still super successful I, I keep talking about the 2017 version of Alex Smith like you don't have to have a strong arm or the greatest velocity to make that work if you're throwing in rhythm and if your guys are that wide open because your offense is that good. And so teams are now realizing we have to cover 50, 60 yards deep because it's very real that they can push the ball downfield like that. And so now that opens up everything underneath. And this is an offense which uh, has so much speed in really every position now. Now the running back room solidified. The offensive line, you can tell, starting to figure it out. Um I think run game wise, there was a combination of doing a lot of things out of shotgun that the Shanahan tree is used to doing from under center and kind of figuring out the exact angles and timing and relationship of the running back to what you're expecting on, on the offensive line at the tight end and receiver positions. Um, but you could tell today, man, like the run game, the receivers on the backside are coming in and sealing off at the right angle. Like they just, they all understand the offense so much better now and the ex- get those angles and there's so much space to make it work. Uh, and McDaniel is, you know, realizing how to maximize every single guy's strength. Like they're doing a lot more shotgun because two is really good at it. And that's what he's used to. And they're incorporating the best versions of what two has done in college and at the pros with the best things from, uh, the Shanahan playbook with the best things you can do with the best receiver and the next fastest guy in the NFL. And it looks awesome. And, it just it, it doesn't look like there's really a way to stop it. Um, I hope Miami can stay healthy because I like good offenses. I love watching, um, you know, good football and, and they're playing really good football right now, you know, on the offensive side of the ball for sure. It's hard not to watch them and not just smile. Like there are sequences of plays where you're like, oh, that's good shit, man. <laughs> like they're, the first quarter today, it was like 825 left in the first quarter. They had a little play fake from the gun and they got him on the move just a little bit. And their offensive line is playing much, much better, obviously, than it did last year. But still is the area of this team you'd be the most concerned about. When Teron's in there, it's obviously much more solidified. But anytime you can get him on the move a little bit, get him out of the pocket, change the launch point, you're going to help yourself. So they just do that in subtle ways. The next play, they ran a run from the gun, like you're talking about, with Ingold coming across to kick out the end man on the line of scrimmage and Hunt pulling up. It's beautiful. Timing, angles, everything. Next play, they do it the opposite way. Ingold coming across, another chunk play in the run game. Next play is the Ingold touchdown. He comes across the formation again, sneaks out into the flat. Tua does a great job of making the unblocked edge miss, dumps it off to him, touchdown. So you have these three plays in sequence where he's coming across the formation. There's two run designs attached to it, and then there's a play action throw off of it that they score a touchdown on. And that's sort of stuff where it all fits together. And you talk about them understanding the offense, understanding what you're trying to accomplish, really settling in. You see that stuff all the time. And then you get and to the two of plays. Oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, they probably have four more counters to that those looks. Like, Absolutely that's the thing, playing for Janahan. Like, I'm going to do this, they're going to react to it, and then I'm going to do this, and they're going to react to it, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then that. And there's so many levels of what we can do to mess with guys on, like, just a tight end or a fullback coming across the formation. You can cut the defensive end. You can block him up high. You can bluff him, release to the flat. You can hit him, get up, release to the flat. You can miss him all together and sneak out vertically. Like, there's so many things off of one simple guy coming across the formation. And now you tie that to, you know, five skill guys and the quarterback and shotgun under center, you know, a little bit of pistol stuff sprinkled in, putting these guys in the backfield. Like, this is the best version of what the offense could be. And it's cool that we've seen it. And like you're saying, we're going to talk about like Tua as a passer looks as good as he's ever looked as well. He, he looks really, really good. And, and there are moments that, that to me, this is a perfect encapsulation of the conversation that we're having about Tua where you watch the play and it's like, God, oh, it's underthrown. Like it just, he just doesn't have that big of an arm, but it makes sense within what they're trying to accomplish. It's 533 left in the second quarter. It was first and 10. The Browns brought the third safety off the edge on a play-action pass. So the pocket is crumbling, and he doesn't have much time after he gets his head around. But he gets the throw off, and it's a Tyreek down the right sideline, and it's underthrown, quote-unquote, by probably four or five yards. But him even getting that ball off and knowing where that space is is a testament to him understanding exactly what he's trying to accomplish and where he's trying to attack a team. So there's an ocean of space out there, but he knows it. He knows all he has to do is get that ball out of his hand, and it's going to be a huge play. It was really similar, and it reminded me of the third and 13 completion they had against Detroit on that cover zero play in the first half, where the ball is underthrown, but the fact that he even gets it off and knows that if he does get it off, it's going to be a huge play, he deserves credit for that. So it's it all is coming from these different directions where – He's doing everything he can do within his skill set to make the offense really good. The design of it all makes sense and I think is even getting better as they learn their personnel. And you have all this heat coming at you all the time that just makes teams terrified in every single moment of every single game. So when you're trying to divvy up credit, it's hard to pull one thing apart from the other. But I think the conclusion is it doesn't really matter. The end result is the scariest offense in football right now. Yeah, and it's the type of thing that when you criticize the arm strength or the underthrows, like that doesn't mean that you don't think he's a good player. Like we're just talking about what the best version could look like compared to top guys in the NFL. Because when you're the fifth overall pick or the sixth overall pick, that's how you're going to be compared. Like you were one of the best quarterback prospects coming out of high school and then coming out of college. So yeah, you're going to be compared to Mahomes and Allen and, and you know, the back-to-back Rogers MVP seasons and say, do you have the same top level as these other guys? Like the stuff that we knew he could do really well is process, get the ball out quickly, be very accurate and 20 yards and under. I think we've seen all of that and the best he's been at all of that uh, throughout the season. And, and, you know, for the most part, not super surprising that he's good at that. Like that is what he's good at. The question was, can all of that overcome, you know, what is a deficiency compared to the top level quarterbacks? And so far the answer is yes, because the offense, like you said, is so drastically good that there aren't many off-platform plays. There is so much space that they can afford those underthrows. There are uh, just so many good things happening that um, he's able to look <laughs> exceptional in the offense. And, you know, there, there are a couple throws today that you realize, 
like he obviously knows himself and he's a good quarterback and knows how to throw the ball but he alters like the height of the release in terms of where the ball is going like if it was you know in baseball terms it'd kind of be launch angle but that's kind of how he buffers the the lack of arm strength per se um and there's these throws like the the one to the back left corner of the end zone that he just releases it it's beautiful and that throw was so much higher than some of his others and not because he needed to necessarily like throw it super high to drop it in but because like that's the calibration he needed to get it to that spot in the right um you know area because again Mahomes or Allen they could have made that throw and they could have thrown it with a little bit more of kind of a driving you know pushing the ball through the wind um and still put it up top level where your where your guy could go up and get it but for him he's adjusting the angles of throws kind of based on the velocity he needs and it shows like you said a true mastery of kind of what he's doing his understanding of himself what he needs to get to the receivers but you know getting to that kind of top level question is you know to a making the offense like drastically better or theoretically, you know, are you able to plug someone else in there who can make quick decisions to get the ball out? I'd say the last few weeks, it does seem like he's trending towards being someone who's, you know, maximizing the offense to what he can do. I don't know if it's maximizing the offense compared to what, again, Mahomes, Allen Herbert could do. And once you truly get a guy who could like launch a 70 yards downfield. And so that's the two a debate. And that's the frustrating thing is like, it's so close to being the best thing that you could possibly wish. There's just like this one little thing holding it back. But I think for now, just watching him, appreciating it, and, you know, just seeing this machine that they've turned into on offense, uh, it's really fun. And, you know, they're definitely on my TV every single week. The touchdown throw to Sherfield was gorgeous. And on that same drive, it was a third down. He changed the protection where he moved the back to the other side. The back picked up a free runner through the left B gap. And that was the third down he hit to waddle on the right sideline. There's like a beautifully placed ball. That was the best drive of the game from him for me. Just those couple throws were just like, okay, that is like high degree of difficulty stuff. Taking it back to the big picture for a second or last weekend on Friday, there was some conversation happening online about the amount of man coverage that the dolphins have seen and how they don't see much. And I wanted to make it clear, like the Dolphins don't see a lot of man coverage because Tyreek Hill is on the Dolphins. <laughs> like if you look at the man coverage rates that the Chiefs saw last year and that the Chiefs see now, they're very different. And there's only one thing that's different about the Chiefs offense. If you look at the man coverage rates that the Dolphins see now compared to last year, they're very different. There's really only one thing that's different about the Dolphins offense. But that doesn't take anything away from Tua. Because what you're saying, how many guys could be doing this? It feels like so perfect because teams play mostly zone against them, and that's where his skill set really shines. He's moving guys with his eyes. It's ball placement. It's timing. It's anticipation. It's understanding exactly what the play is trying to accomplish, okay? If I have this guy here, this guy here, and there's one zone defender I have to worry about, how do I move that guy and on time and accurately throw the ball into this window? He's fantastic at anticipating and finding windows. And that skill is accentuated within an offense that sees almost all zone coverage. So it's hard to answer how a different quarterback would be doing in these specific circumstances because in a lot of ways, the circumstances are tailored to what he does well. And I think that's why we're seeing the results that we're seeing from them so far. Right. And and where my mind goes and you know, thinking about kind of the business side and salary cap and all that – 
This is awesome when you've got a guy who's, you know, a top five pick and can be on a rookie contract. If you now have to pay him market salary and, you know, Burrow, Herbert, Lamar, they're going to jump the quarterback market like crazy. It's going to get into the low 50s. Let's just assume they get it to 51, 52, 53 and say two is in the 48 to 50 range or, you know, above that. And, and he gets the next best contract and he's making 53 million. Now, are you able to have the same level of offense once he's taking up 40 million more, 30 million more in cap space? And maybe you can't pay Waddle, or you do pay Waddle and Tua and Tyreek. And now you're skimping somewhere else. And realistically, offensively, that would have to be on the offensive line. And now they're not quite as good. He's got to move around a little more. He's not able to have those rhythm plays. Like, that's the biggest question is, is this the guy that you can pay top dollar and still be able to build a good enough offense because he can lift everybody around him um, to that degree that the other top quarterbacks have? And that's really the root of the, is he, you know, one of the top quarterback questions. I don't know how to answer that right now. <laughs> and, and that's not an indictment of him, right? Like it just, that's, that's the, what makes this conversation really, really difficult is that it's hard to know. These guys that look excellent in excellent circumstances because you can do this with your other resources, what happens when those surroundings start to erode a little bit? And that's something that we're going to have to figure out. Like I'm trying to look at it right now. And so the way that the Dolphins did this, I think, is actually pretty smart. So Tyreek Hill has a $31 million cap hit next year, 2023, when Tua has a $9.6 million cap hit. It makes total sense. 2024, Tyreek's cap hit goes down to 25 million. And then in 2005, in 2025, it's 28 million. So the way they've structured this thing actually seems like it might be palatable for them to pay both of those guys and pay the quarterback at the same time and maybe skimp in some other areas of the roster. Because I don't know what the answer to that question is. It's un, it's impossible to know because, and that's why these teams are smart in the way they've built it. It's like, all right. We have the excess capital right now. We have the room. And in the Dolphins' case, they had the draft capital because of all the trades they'd made and the way that they'd torn things down. So let's do everything we can to make sure we're allowing this guy to succeed in the short term. And we'll figure the rest out later. So I'm in the we'll figure the rest out later stage of this because I don't want to start having the conversation about whether Tua deserves an extension. <laughs> fair enough fair enough i could go on this for another few minutes but uh i think you're right it's very premature let's just appreciate really good football really good offense. they got two more years of this right so right now you're looking at his contract in 2023 he, he's making 9.6 and then his the fifth year option so the fifth year option will be i i don't know exactly but i'm sure like in the 20 million dollar range probably somewhere around there right like that's about what kyler's making this year i want to say well, so, so where I was going to go, if we really want to get into it, is does he say, I'm not playing without a new contract? And then does he force their hand? And that kind of accelerates the timeline. Because if you want to wait until another year, like you have two years essentially from when a guy signs a contract at the quarterback position until his cap hit balloons into like the 50 and 60 range. Like the first two years are relatively manageable because of the signing bonus and a lower salary. So you, you do have that window. It's just... Can we push that out by another year and make it a three-year window instead of a two-year window until he's got a top five cap hit? Or is he just going to keep rolling and be in the MVP discussion and be like, 
nope, you're going to pay me Herbert and Burrow rates and I'm not going to play if you don't do that. And now you're accelerating that timeline. And that's where it starts to get a little bit more interesting because, again, you've got the Tyreek deal. You've got Chubb you just paid a bunch of money to. Like they have high-paid defensive guys. Waddle's going to be up. Um, they're just, you know, this is one of the problems when you're a really good team with a lot of really good players. you got to figure out how to allocate the money. I would probably try to buy as much time as I could because I do think that we've seen with some of these quarterback contracts, there's buyer's remorse fairly fast because it's the exact conversation. Like I think he's more central to the Dolphins success on offense than like Jared Goff was to the 2019 Rams. But a lot of these quarterback contracts that have been handed out when these guys are on these rookie deals and their success has been in part driven or in part helped by the players around them. We've seen what happens when the picture starts to change. So I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I do think it's something to keep in the back of your mind as you think about when you're going to hand out this sort of deal. I'm with you. It'll All be right. Interesting. The last guy. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't want to do this right now. The last guy I want to mention about the Dolphins, the Jeff Wilson trade looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Getting him for a pick that you're just throwing in and what he was on the ground today and the pop he's giving them him because you're always a Mostert injury away. Like, I hate to say it, but when you look at his history, it's hard not to be concerned about it. And the fact that now you have Wilson in there who obviously knows the offense, obviously knows the terminology. It was good immediately and looks like he's got a lot of pop when you put him in there like that is a that's very good news for what this offense could look like over the rest of the season even if Mostert were to get banged up and they just didn't have that previously with Edmonds yeah it looks awesome and again the biggest thing like you said he knows the offense he's able to come in like the understanding of the angles where to get to kind of how to feed off you know not just the offensive line blocks but the downfield blocks the receiver uh blocking you know, that's kind of that next level thing that it takes a little bit of time to kind of fully trust in that Shanahan offense because, you know, we we associate that offense, especially on, you know, kind of inside zone plays for running backs winding it all the way back and you get to the backside corner of the backside safety and that's not, you know, truly the design of the play. You're still reading out properly, but if the defense is playing gap sound, like, well, that gap's closed, that gap's closed, that gap's closed, and you start going backwards, and like the open gap is all the way on the backside, and then you get to that backside corner, and you know the the backside receivers now push cracked on the safety, and it's one on one with the corner, and you know as most people would like to say, you know I would expect my running back to win a one on one matchup in space with a corner, um, and he gets that, he understands the angles, and then he has the juice and the ability to break the tackle when he does get there. So yeah, you're looking at basically two number one running backs, and you still got other guys in, in that position group that can also run the ball pretty efficiently so you know best case scenario you've got two awesome running backs you can rotate in who have complementary and really ex- excellent skill sets and you know worst case scenario one of them gets hurt and you've got insurance for it so um like you said a, a really good trade and a good use of draft capital for you know those fifth sixth round picks i mean you look at the data and it's what like a 10 percent chance of being a quality starter when i can just go get a guy that i know is already a quality starter and going to really solidify a, an important position on the offense i mean that's just one of those moves where as soon as they make the McCaffrey trade they know eli mitchell's coming back i'm sure you can get him for the right price and i think that chris greer has done a really good job of being smart about how they've added a lot of talent to this team over the last year or so the chubb deal is that is we're pushing the chips in and if you look at the actual value of it i'm sure it's going to be hard to get much from that but i still get why you make that trade all right next one here the tampa bay buccaneers playoff chances you have my attention i was looking at the 538 uh numbers earlier today 
And after that game, the Bucks are five and five. It says they have an eighty-five percent chance to make the playoffs. Oh, man. At five and five. Eighty-five <laughs> percent. It's wild. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so with that in mind, this idea that we're gonna see the Bucks in the playoffs, better chance than not. Atlanta losing to Carolina, the state of that Falcons team, the state of the Panthers team, what the Saints look like right now. Like the Bucks are gonna win this division. I I, I put a lot of money on it. So by the, I think we always thought that. The question was, by the end of the season, by the start of the playoffs, are they going to be scary? Are they going to be a team that lives up to not even preseason expectations, but some version of our expectations for them, where they can actually knock off one of these teams in the NFC? The game they played today, does that give you hope that they can get there by the end of the year? Not from the game they played today. Uh, I think you're just banking on tom brady and the fact that they won the super bowl a couple years ago and like maybe they've got kind of one last hurrah on them uh once you reach the playoffs and like that can be the thing that fully motivates you to you know give your best performance but you know you just kind of see a team and you know i watched the a little bit of of the game at the beginning and the first drive you know they plow their head straight down for a zero yard run the next play, you know, Brady's off with the receiver a little bit. And the next play, the receivers are like looking at each other, trying to figure out the splits, who's on the ball, what they're doing. Ball snapped. Brady throws it to the other side of the field and overthrows Julio. So, yeah, it's just one drive. They go on, they score three touchdowns, and they beat a, you know, pretty good Seattle team who's been playing well lately. And you can kind of forget about those things. But, like, why are they having issues still with a veteran receiver group lining up correctly? Why are Brady and Evans so off on a – pretty much every single game they just seem off on what they're supposed to do where the ball is being placed um there's just a lot of those things that don't make sense to be 10 weeks in the season to be having you know this many uh kind of like the mental errors it's hard to parse out mental errors between you know players when they're both kind of quality veterans and and you would think that they know what they're doing and then you know the left with left which press conferences have been a little bit brutal the past few weeks and just a, a clear lack of understanding of you know kind of what drives offenses and what um kind of leads to <laughs> that's a nice way to say so, it. Uh, well, so <laughs> this, is, this is my this is why this is my point here okay it is brutal and some of the things he's saying are objectively not true but what we saw today is enough to trick him potentially into running this offense in the most efficient way possible. So he no. said this week. No. So so they here, had more here's, success here's my, running the ball today, which is going to trick him into wanting to run the ball more. That's not the more so, successful version. So he, let, let, hear me out, okay? They had more success running the ball. They had a lot more, okay? They were 10th in the NFL in EPA per rush on Sunday. They came in 31st. Rashad White, potentially a driver of that. I typically would be worried about them having more success running the ball and have that be lead to running more. But Byron Leftwich is under the impression, he has said this, that we need to run the ball well to use play action or it doesn't work. Objectively not true. Tom Brady was eighth in the NFL in EPA per dropback on play action before this game. The problem was, because they weren't running the ball well, they weren't using play action. Brady was 37th of 39 quarterbacks in weeks one through nine, and the percentage of his dropbacks that involved play action was 15%, even though he was seventh in EPA per dropback on those plays. I said eighth. That was wrong. Okay. He had 59 play action dropbacks over the first nine weeks of the season. He had nine on Sunday. He was eight of nine for 110 yards, 31%. 
of his dropbacks on Sunday involve play action. Twice as much as over the first nine weeks of the season. So if they are running the ball more efficiently, does that mean that they will use more play action and actually accidentally stumble (laughs) into the best version of who they can be on offense? Because that's what I watched today. Along with the running, they're running downhill play action and getting chunks off of it. And that's what they need to do to actually be scary. So somehow with Rashad White, some better play up front, which I do think they got today. Brady was pressured on looking at it five of his 29 dropbacks in this game. Might say something about Seattle's front, which we can get into in a second. But if they're playing a little bit better up front, if they're running the ball a little bit better with White, do they use a little bit more play action? And do we see some of those gashes in the play action game that they're doing when this offense is really rolling? Because I, that is what would make me a little bit more optimistic. So I can see where your mind's going with that. When I was listening to you, it sounded a lot like when I was in school. And it's like, if X leads to Y and if Y leads to Z, then does Z equal A? And like, <laughs> like sometimes it should work that way, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, saying that they're going to like accidentally stumble into a better version of the offense does not assure me and does not make me feel better about things so my answer is still going to be no like they still got fundamental issues they've got a just severe misunderstanding of you know what drives nfl offenses and which things are complementary which things are not which things are more efficient which things aren't um they've got too many veteran players who don't seem to be on the same page and don't seem to fully kind of understand where things are at um you know all that being said again the NFC South is abysmal. They're going to make the playoffs and they've got enough built up equity to, you know, do something in the playoffs. I don't know what that something is, but, um, you know, they're going to have a home game against one of these other teams that is going to have a good record, but DVOA is going to say they're the 14th best team. And yeah, if Tampa is the 19th best team, like they can very easily have a good game, especially at home. So, um, I don't like love them long term and and today's game doesn't really drastically uh, change things for me, but I think it's a really good step for them to at least win a game and feel like, yeah, we did things better. We put a relatively full game together and, you know, now we can kind of get things back on track and just have a little bit of that confidence that, you know, I'm sure that they were kind of doubting themselves and feeling a little down and just that frustration of "Ah, what's going wrong. How do we fix it? Now maybe they have the confidence that like, all right, we've done it. We pulled out this, gritty gutsy game against the rams and then now we go to germany we have this more complete game against the seattle team that's playing really well you know we're gonna get back to being the tampa bay buccaneers i can't quit them i just can't like the way they look today it's Brady. Just, again, how can you some i can't quit them some of the downhill play action stuff and just some of the windows that again just, i want to see this team playing downhill at you and i that they we're more like that today than they have been for huge chunks of this season. And there are also a couple plays in this game. On the first drive, Evans just snatches the ball away on a contested catch. Godwin made a ridiculous play up the left sideline. Like At a certain point, if they just somehow find a combination of we're running the ball this well, we're using this much play action, and they have the talent, like I still think they're going to be a little bit dangerous. And they're getting healthier on the defensive side. Getting Winfield back, having some guys back on the back end. I think the Seattle offense is playing really well. They gave them a bunch of problems. So I'm not all the way back there. I'm not all the way back yet, but I do feel better now than I did this morning. I, I, I will readily admit that. On the Seattle side of this, one of five on third and short in this game, which is brutal. And then I'm concerned about their ability to get after the quarterback. 
the fact that Brady was not pressured at all today and some of those really big moments he had absolutely all day to throw, I think that is where the Seattle team is going to be undone over the rest of the season. I do think that's probably the weakest part of who they are. Interior pass rush, secondary edge guys, all that kind of stuff. I think that showed up in a big way today. Yeah, it was kind of strange that their defense like became the third best defense in football over a, a five-week window because <laughs> um, we just didn't think they had the personnel to pull that off. And you know, a lot of that is kind of rookies on the outside being um, really good players and also being named after other famous athletes, and and also you know, uh, getting uh, having Leonard or Leonard Fournette throw passes to you that are intended for Tom Brady. That also helps your interception totals over the course of a season. That, that is also correct, but I don't know that you know this game is going to you know bear out their their top three DVOA status. But this, <laughs> like you said, they didn't seem like they had the kind of personnel that could turn into a clear top of the league defense and that's how they had been playing you know for the last month or so and so uh this game like you said is as much as i just said like this one game doesn't change much about tampa and my outlook on them like i think it kind of re-solidifies the fact that seattle is a bit deficient and they've been playing really good football on the defensive side and everything's kind of come together and they're playing you know one of those some of the parts is is better than the individual parts types of things i don't know if i said that correctly but you know it's midnight where i am and so i'm allowed to <laughs> say some crazy things um but they're just playing really good team defense and when you go up against those better offenses and and the teams that can get the ball out quick and or you know have a better offensive line, especially when you look to the playoffs, you're thinking about you know the Eagles offensive line wise. You're thinking about San Fran, you know, just pounding the ball. It gets a little bit scary that the like you said the defense line isn't quite there personnel wise with you know a Dallas defensive front or what the Vikings can do getting after the passer. Um, it's just not quite there and, and gives you a little bit of worry about how this team can do um, in the you know last half of the season and especially if they do make it to the playoffs. Yeah, I, I think that the version of the Vikings team I saw today is definitely scarier than, Minnesota, than Seattle, and I'm, I'm willing to correct that based on some conversations we've had on the show recently. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts, I think, is what you're after there. Yeah, cool. And, and I, do right. the Vikings, I do think that the Vikings, I do think the Seahawks have that kind of feel this year. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and then we're going to get to not mad, just disappointed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're still cool, man. We're still cool. I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. All right, let's talk about the AFC West, which you know a lot about. The Raiders and the Chargers, or excuse me, the Raiders and the Broncos. We talk about the Chargers a different time. The Raiders and the Broncos had playoff hopes coming into this season, right? Broncos trade for Russell Wilson. What can they do? You know, were they a quarterback away? The Raiders go out and get Devontae Adams. They signed Chandler Jones. They made the playoffs last year. Well, the Raiders are two and seven. They lost to a team today that hired a coach who had never coached an NFL game or a game at the college level or a football game of any real consequence. The Bronco or the Broncos today scored 10 points against a Titans team that was missing Jeffrey Simmons, Christian Fulton, Amani Hooker, among other pieces. Disaster seasons from both of these teams. Let's start with the Raiders, okay? Are we being too drastic or too reactionary saying that this could be a one-and-done thing for Josh McDaniels based on how bad the Raiders look? Because coming into this game, and I think for most of the season, any of those rumblings I kind of thought were silly. You know, One-and-done, you have to be so, so bad to justify that. Do you think the Raiders have been bad enough that they have to consider any possible decisions after the season's over? They're on the trajectory that gets coaches fired, where you play a little bit better at the beginning of the year, um, you kind of figure things out a bit, and then you start going downhill. And what owners hate to see is teams who look like they're losing steam late in the year. They don't look like they're getting better. You know, Carr had that really emotional press conference where it seemed like he was kind of saying that a lot of guys on the team don't care as much as they sit they should and they don't prepare the way they should you know he said he loves josh and you know the rest of the coaching staff i couldn't tell if he was trying to you know put them in that pile at all but um they're just going in a direction that seems obvious that you know they're getting worse they're not getting better they're not showing signs of improvement they're you know not really like an older team but they do seem like they have you know the higher paid guys that they should be winning right now it's not like a grow into success um timeline for them and so yeah it seems plausible that that could be the case now this whole new england power structure and bringing in a, a gm and a coach who are kind of tied together i don't know if you fire both of them at once that seems a little drastic but then if you fire a, a you know a belichick you know head coach and you keep the belichick gm have we really seen what that looks like outside of it? And, and I don't really know there. Um, but they're not on a good trajectory. And like, dude, three weeks ago, I was telling people, I think the Raiders are the second best team in the AFC West. And <laughs> I think they're going to make the playoffs. No joke. I thought they were better than Chargers. They, they were losing awesome. all these close games. It, they they were yeah, absolutely and they better than their identity. record indicated. They, they knew what they were good at. They were successful with it. Their O-line was playing great. Carr was looking good. They were driving the ball down the field. They were running well. They are play-actioning like they knew who they were and they were playing well within that system. And now they're not playing quite as well overall and they're losing close games and they're losing games to bad teams. Uh, it's just really bad and it's turned like really quickly. And that's kind of the weird thing right now at this moment, the Raiders have the second pick in the draft. Oof. Okay. Derek Carr, the way his contract is structured they can move on from him for no penalty whatsoever. It was really just a one-year deal where the guarantees kicked in, I think, on February 15th. I think it's all of his 2023 base salary, which is like $31 million, and $7 million of his 2024 salary. But that doesn't become guaranteed until the day after Valentine's Day. So they could theoretically move on from him. He has a no-trade clause. But let's play out this hypothetical. 
there is a place where he'd want to go. And I'm sure a lot of teams that need a quarterback would be interested in Derek Carr this offseason. Because it's $31 million next year. I think it's 42 and 42. Those are base salaries. You could play with those. You convert some of it to a signing bonus. You do something funny with it where you can get the cap number down. There's some flexibility built in. Do you think the Raiders should consider starting over with a young quarterback because they're kind of gifted this opportunity to move on from Carr and hit the reset button? Yeah, you should always be looking to get better, and especially at the quarterback position. And if you know you identify Bryce Young as the guy who can drastically alter, I keep saying drastically, but like dramatically change the the face of your franchise and do something that can make the team that much better, and you think you know you've got this little boost and then a short term, and then also he can be the real deal long term. Like, yeah, you should do it. And you have the draft ammo for once to be able to actually get that guy without giving up, you know, a Trey Lance package and, and kind of hamstringing yourself for the future. Um, yeah, you you always are looking to get better at every single position. Like, the Chiefs should be looking to get better at quarterback. There's just no reasonable <laughs> scenario where they find anyone who's better and more easily acquirable than Patrick Mahomes. Like, that's just not going to happen for the next 15 years. But, like, every team is always looking to get better at any position, especially when you can move on from the guy. Like, it's one thing to say, ah, well, we'd, you know, have to pay $25 million in dead money and, you know, this would be a whole reboot and all these things. But, like, theoretically, you get, again, Bryce Young and you have – you know, an offense that utilizes his legs and now you're able to be a little bit more multiple and he can do these other things. And maybe you don't have to fully reset because again, you've got two edge rushers who are really good on really large contracts and you've got wide receiver who's, you know, reaching the end of, you know, kind of peak wide receiver play and he's making a lot of money and you've got some offensive line pieces that are getting paid and, you know, you're not switching too much. So you would potentially want to restart at the position, but not like the whole team because that would be a bit of a you know couple year thing to get rid of some contracts and to get you know eat some dead money and, and kind of do it so you should absolutely be looking to upgrade at the quarterback position the question is can you make that decision that quickly because if you have to move on and move on move on from him by uh the 15th of february like that's not nearly enough time for these scouts to you know fully flesh things out you're not gonna be able to do all the meetings with the guy that you want you're not gonna get to see him at the combine and you know get to do the pro days and, and kind of fully evaluate so that's gonna be the interesting part is whether you feel good enough about one of the quarterbacks um whether it's bryce whether it's stroud whether it's someone else um that you would move on that early from the quarterback without maybe knowing specifically which one of those two guys it, it, it would be. What do we think about the Colts right now? And the fact that if they had just played Matt Ryan over the last couple of weeks, instead of the owner forcing them to go play Sam Ellinger, they potentially could have beat Washington. They probably would have been in that game against new England. And maybe this would look a little bit different for them. It, it's hard to, I don't think it really matters. It's just one of those things where it's like, man, what has all of this been for? <laughs> if Matt Ryan's going to be able to play that decent and allow your offense to actually operate. Well, I mean, he was playing better ball than Ellinger, but that's not a big bar to jump over. So No, it's um, not saying much. No, like they just were a bad football team. And like the record was different than the way they looked and the way that you know, the advanced stats said they were. Um, just because you have a good record, does that mean you should, you know, 
kind of push for the seven seed, if that's theoretically a possibility at the expense of potentially, you know, playing this young guy and seeing if he has something in the future. Like he had a really good preseason and I know they were excited about him. Obviously, you know, Ursay care enough to, like you said, upend the season and, and bench Matt Ryan and all these other things. Um, I just didn't think they were a good team at all. And so I didn't really think that changing the quarterback made that big of a difference. Like the O-line was really struggling. The quarterback was struggling. Played the better today. Were struggling. Yeah, they did. You know, you got to get those O-line head coaches with that experience. You know, call me Raiders after you fire uh, Josh after <laughs> the end of the season. But uh, yeah, it's, it's... You would hate that. You would hate that job. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd say no. But the money would be nice. But all right, look, look. Give someone else $8 million a year. You were going to give me 10. I'll take 2 million to be an online consultant and we'll hash it out. I'll stay in Kansas City, but I promise I won't, you know, tell the Chiefs what you guys are doing. All right, let's get to the Broncos here very quickly. Just another disastrous game on offense. I mean, the fact that the Titans won this game with like one flea flicker and three Ryan Tannehill <laughs> throws and the Broncos couldn't muster anything more than that. If you're on that Denver team, and you're somebody who's going to be there for like multiple years. Like if you're Garrett Bowles and you've signed a contract extension, you know your future, at least for the next couple seasons, is probably in Denver. And you know what they did to go get Wilson. And you know they gave him that contract. What are you thinking right now? Very skeptical. Um, most guys don't have that kind of big picture view. Like you know it's bad, but you kind you of trust would. the guy. Yeah, I know. But I would have been honed by years in Cleveland. So, <laughs> um, no, so... The the interesting part is they didn't have to give him the big contract when they gave it to him. They gave it to him, you know, in the offseason after OTAs. Um, there was a really, like, weird report at the end of OTAs or before training camp that, like, they're going to tailor the offense to Russell Wilson's strengths. And it's like, well, obviously you should tailor the offense to your quarterback's strengths. But he obviously showed enough in the offseason to be like, okay, let's give this guy $48 million a year and let's guarantee, like, three years of that. And this is for sure the guy that we traded for. So I don't know what that disconnect is between the guy they saw in the building who looked that good, who was that consistent day-to-day, who raised the level of everyone around him and was the leader that we know that he can be. Um, the former Seattle players are you know, kind of crapping on what we thought he could be as a leader. But well, That's also you know, part of this. Right. He clearly did something to show the GM, who seems to be well-respected in the NFL, and got everyone excited that, like, all right, we finally saw the – quarterback position and then the season's unfolded and he's looked like a totally different quarterback a much worse quarterback a guy who hasn't really been able to stay fully healthy on top of that and all the stories coming out are that he's not really a good leader and he kind of needs to be catered to and all these other things so it's uh it's difficult and if i was a veteran player like you kind of just got to play ball and you know hope what you do is enough and hope he can turn it around and just like you have that wonder in the back of your head, like why was it so good in OTAs and why is it so bad now? And hopefully we can figure it out. If you were dealing with a quarterback who was like a superstar quarterback, paid like it at the very least, and didn't seem to have any interest in being a part of the locker room or didn't was playing poorly enough that the stuff that you would kind of smirk about was becoming a little bit harder to ignore. How do you think that you would work through that? Because I don't think you've ever had to deal with that. The superstar quarterback that you played with is like a generally likable and <laughs> beloved human being. Yeah, I would struggle with that. You know, that gets back to kind of what you were saying about Rodgers earlier. It just, it would get difficult to not, you know, tune it out is one thing. But then when you get to the point where it's just like, dude, get the fuck away from me. Like, 
that could get, it could get to that point really easily with a lot of guys in the locker room who are just tired of the act and the facade. And, you know, he doesn't have the built up equity that he had in Seattle that kept him around for that long. Um, and so now you're just this guy who's, you know, been somewhat exposed as, you know, being a little bit of um, kind of a caricature and, and just doing what he needs to do. Like, I don't know how I could watch those grueling press conferences and how cheesy and corny he is and just be like, my God, man, I got to block for you every single day. Um, it would be difficult. And, you know, you just have to remember that you want to make a lot of money too and be successful. And uh, you just got to keep doing what you're doing. And, um, you know, there isn't that part of you that's like, eh, I'm going to give up the sack and, you know, get this guy hurt or whatever. Like, no one thinks like that. That's not the way things work. Like, those storylines are great for movies, but, um, you know, you still put yourself first over anything else. And so you just have to kind of compartmentalize the, you know, personal side of not liking certain things with the professional and just kind of try your best because, Again, you're really important for the other offensive linemen, other guys on the offense. Like the defense is always looking towards the offensive line. Like how are these guys doing up front? Are they being dogs? Are they, you know, giving us what we need? And so it's it's a lot bigger than, you know, just that one guy. And you kind of have to keep that in perspective. All right, let's stick on the AFC West very quickly. Let's do two minutes of Chiefs talk. How are you feeling about the Chiefs right now? You know, I feel good. Not a, not great. It just, it, it, doesn't look clean like they have the tampa bay game which you know was kind of a revenge game as much as we joke about revenge games but like very clearly a lot of focus and energy <laughs> going out there and and kicking butt and kind of redeeming the super bowl from a couple of years ago and aside from that it's been kind of up and down football and even when you know a relatively easy win today all things considered but first play of the game actually before the first play coin toss they get the coin toss wrong this is an Andy Reid team, which means you're supposed to defer, and they choose to take the ball, um, probably because whoever it was got told, like, hey, once we defer, and they choose, like, now you have to make sure you choose the ball after that, whatever it was, or, like, if they defer, make sure you choose the ball. Well, they chose the ball, so got it wrong on the coin toss. Then, surprise onside kick, don't recover that. There's another special teams turnover. There's, an inter- like, an interception that was later in the game. There's a missed extra point. It's just it's not clean football and it's not consistently, you know, clean football. And Jacksonville's bad enough that the game was relatively easy. So again, it gets back to my overarching theme, which is just get to the playoffs healthy and we'll figure it out then. So I'm not super concerned because the team has stayed relatively healthy. Um, but like it just it's not quite as consistent. And outside of Chris Jones, nobody can rush the passer. And that's going to be the biggest thing once the playoffs come. Like, can Chris overcome the lack of pass rush of everyone around him? Um, because if not, then, you know, I don't think the team has the top end of what we thought Buffalo could be. That's the thing you're most worried about, just personnel-wise, is what's going to happen at the other pass rushing spots. Yeah, because offensively, you know, you, I trust Coach. I trust Pat. Like, I trust Travis. Like, they're going to be good enough that, you know, they're going to score, you know, 20 24 points on good defenses and they could score you know 40 points on a not quite as good defense in in the playoffs but can you affect the other quarterback enough and especially once you get into those good games against better teams who have better offensive lines and you have only one guy that can you know beat someone one-on-one and get to the quarterback more than once or twice a game um that's probably the thing that's limiting them the most the flip side is the defensive backs look really good and they do have some young guys who are playing better so maybe that offsets the pass rush just a little bit but as we talked about you have to get out to the quarterback that's the number one most important thing on the defensive side and you know it has to be more than just one guy 
All right. That's all we got. Thank you very, very much for doing this. It is always great to chat with you. Really, really appreciate you filling in. Did us a favor and uh, means a lot that you would take the time to do this at midnight or whatever time we happen to be recording this thing. So thank you very much for doing it, buddy. Well, you're welcome. Good to see you and talk to you as always. All right. Please, if you guys would, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening to this, there was a link in the description of the podcast. You can click, you can click on it. You can go do that. We will be back this week with Thursday Night Football recaps. We do this show on live on YouTube. We'll do our Thursday or our weekly preview live on YouTube. Got some more YouTube-specific stuff rolling out with Mitch, actually, coming to you hopefully pretty soon. So please subscribe if you have not subscribed to the podcast feed if you haven't. If you want to go leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen, it would mean a lot to us. It would be a huge help. So if you like the show, let us know. We will be back on Monday, tomorrow, with Mike Sando for the Monday Hangover. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.